Tonight I want to talk some more about faith, the qualities of it, especially of trust and acceptance, and what can we really take refuge in. Once I read a definition of faith, describing it as the drive towards that which cannot be described. In other words, this, this drive towards the mystery, towards the wonder. So this sense of faith has nothing to do with beliefs. It's not intellectual in any way. It's not about describing or coming to some final solution, you know, the answer, the description of truth that will end our search. But uh, mostly, faith is what brings us to practice, and without it, we couldn't practice. It sets us on a path. And even though it's this drive towards that which cannot be described, I'd say for most of us, when we come into our spiritual practice, in some ways, part of what it's about might be to acquire more knowledge, more theoretical understanding, techniques, more understanding of the process of mind and body, maybe a better way to live, all of which is very useful. I'm not saying it's not. But the more we try to define with knowledge, the more we find out the world, our life, is such a mystery. It's so indefinable. This is a scientific, an article from the Science of the New York Times about uh, astronomers. It says that the largest galaxy ever detected, whose discovery was announced last week, well, this is a couple years old, just in case you thought you missed something. <laughs> this galaxy includes more than 100 trillion stars and measures more than 6 million light years in diameter. This galaxy is 60 times the size of our galaxy, the Milky Way, our galaxy. <laughs> the newfound galaxy is located in the center of an even larger clump, a cluster of a thousand galaxies called Abel 2029. <laughs> The astronomers hope that further study will provide clues to the role played by a mysterious substance called dark matter. Since there doesn't appear to be enough ordinary matter in the universe to account for the gravitational forces that would seem necessary to cause all this clumping of galaxies, scientists propose the existence of vast amounts of invisible matter that eludes detection because it emits no radiation. According to prevailing wisdom, 99% of the universe consists of this missing mass. (laughs) (laughs) Which means that what is generally thought of as astronomy actually concerns only a tiny subset of particles that happen to be detectable by human nervous systems. 
That's what happens when we really start looking. (laughs) It's such a mystery. So I want to talk tonight about what I call radical faith or radical trust. Radical in that it's objectless. Not talking about faith in a particular doctrine or a particular view that we might hold or a particular experience. But really faith and trust in the truth as it presents itself this moment, nowhere else. Now sometimes we can get caught up in a kind of um, what Suzuki Roshi calls idealized faith. And I mean, it comes about for good reasons. Because when faith first arises in us, and we've spoken of this before, it, it's touched in us either by someone that really inspires us, by hearing the teaching, by meeting a particular teacher, by coming through a particular difficulty in our life. This bright faith, as it's called, brings a real brightness to the heart and mind. It really energizes us. It brings a strong confidence a strong energy, and it's really important, and we've all experienced it, or we wouldn't be here. And this faith is inspired by a doctrine, by a teacher, by somebody who we trust their experience. And this is really important, really valuable. I'm not trying to knock down experience or technique or teachers. But if we then try to solidify faith in this. It can turn into this, what Suzuki Roshi is calling idealized faith. He says, I discovered that it is necessary, absolutely necessary, to believe in nothing. This is a very important point. No matter what God or doctrine you believe in, if you become attached to it, your belief will be based more or less on a self-centered idea. You strive for a perfect faith in order to save yourself. Then you'll become involved in an idealistic practice, in other words, trying to meet these ideals of this perfect faith. In constantly seeking to actualize your ideal, you will have no time for composure. But if you are always prepared for accepting everything we see as something appearing from nothing, then at that moment you will have perfect composure. But again, bright faith is important. It's vital because it's what sets us on a path. I experience it over and over, often coming into contact with you when I, when I speak with people in interviews, just seeing the difficulties that people come through and the light that comes in people's faces through coming through such difficulty from being willing to be present with what is happening right now. It lights up this field of bright faith in me over and over. Or in seeing people such as the Dalai Lama, or a teacher of some of us who died a couple of years ago, Deepama, who I'll t- 
talk about in a minute. All of this is important. Sometimes we think bright faith is going to be always inspiring us by something wonderful, something really uplifting. But it's not so. The Buddha actually said, this is very interesting, the supportive condition for faith to arise is suffering. You might think I'm making that up. (laughs) But it's written down there as the Buddha actually saying it. If you reflect on it a moment, maybe you can, can feel or see how that's true. When, I mean, of course, it depends how we're relating to the suffering. If we're in our usual deny, repress, and avoid mode, it's not necessarily the supportive condition for faith to arise. But I've really noticed in my life that it's suffering which wakes me up out of the dream which shakes me out of the illusion. It awakens us to the basic insecurity of our human existence. It's like we have a nice little house of cards all built and everything's going okay and we feel secure. And something really painful happens in our life and someone who's close to us or we're touched by some suffering in the world and this secure little house of cards collapses. Nisargadatta said once that Um, pleasure puts us to sleep and pain wakes us up. And I've really noticed that to be quite true. When things stop working, when we get a chronic disease, someone we're very close to dies, we just somehow get tuned in to incredible suffering in someone's life and we can see no way that they, quote, deserve it. It makes us wake up. And in the waking up, it makes us want to take a look at what is really true. Very often, people's spiritual awakening has come out of a period of deep suffering. This, from what I know about Deepama's life, this was really true. She was, um, when I met her, she was a little little Indian grandmother. with a daughter and a grandson, and her life had been a lot of suffering. They lived, the daughter and grandson are still alive, lived in Calcutta in a poor, like, one-room cement apartment. And the daughter worked and was separated from her husband, and the only money they lived on was the daughter's job. And she had a hard life. She radiated metta, and strength. She's one of the toughest women I ever met in a very, very loving way. And from what we've been told about her spiritual awakening, it came out of a period of real suffering. She was married quite young, as they do in India, but it turned into a real marriage of love. And she and her husband and children were living in Burma, and the husband died after some years of marriage. And this was so painful to her. Apparently, she was just really stricken with grief, kind of where you take to your bed, and became so sick for really a long period of time that it seemed she would die. And somehow, this suffering just woke her up, woke her faith up to the point where she knew she had to somehow understand and transcend 
this depth of suffering. You know, and the story as she told it to us is that Burma is a very strong Buddhist country, and she went to uh, the Mahasi Sayada Yekta, where they teach this, this particular style of meditation, very famous um, meditation center in, in Rangoon. And she said she was so weak she had to crawl up the stairs to get into the center to meditate. But her faith, the awakening of the need to understand and transcend, was so strong that it pulled her in there and she became this incredible yogi. She's like one of these legendary yogis that we all hear about that I don't need to go into the details because I know I'd hear about it tomorrow if I did. Uh, But... (laughs) But meeting her, seeing the depth of her commitment in the midst of what was still quite a difficult life and then how it had been awakened from the deep suffering she went through, again, it was a cause for awakening in me, this bright faith. Well, once we encounter the suffering, clearly that doesn't always awaken faith in us. The Buddha said that the second condition for faith to develop is it has for its nutriment hearing the true Dhamma. In other words, we need to come into some kind of contact with a teacher, with a teaching, with something that can help us learn to investigate. So again, we're talking about being inspired by some seemingly external source at this time. And that is very helpful. It's still intuitive, though, because what it seems like to me is that this awakening of bright faith it's, it's more like a recognition of something that was always known but somehow long forgotten, unrecognized. And part of, I think, what when we encounter someone or a teaching that really awakens this faith, it's because it feels so, so right, so much like home, you know, that we naturally trust it. So it's also very intuitive, sense that suffering is not the strongest experience, that there is transformation and transcendence within it. So as I said, at this point, faith, right faith, is really important. It gives us the strength, the confidence, the energy to face and be with the difficulty, with suffering, to explore the truth of our existence. And we're using, at this point, some reference, some inspiration, be it the Buddha or the Eightfold Path, uh, meditation techniques, a certain teacher, our own sense of inner understanding, whatever it might be. Because at first it's beyond our present ability to verify what we see in our own experience. The trouble, as we have all also experienced over and over again, is that at this point, this bright faith is not stable. As with everything in our experience, it arises due to conditions. When those conditions change, it flickers, it wavers, it disappears from time to time. 
It's touched a deep place of recognition, but again, somehow we lose sight of that which we had suddenly re-recognized. And you all know that sense over and over, that time when doubts arise and you hit that hard patch, and why did I come? And every retreat I can remember doing, no matter how motivated, there's some point in about the second week, I can kind of clock it now, when I feel really deeply, I can't believe I did this to myself again. What was ever possessing me? You know, at that moment, we've just lost touch with bright faith. (laughs) I seriously lost touch with it. And that's why this faith on its own isn't enough to sustain. Because whenever we're looking outside of ourselves, depending on some external source outside of ourselves that arises due to conditions, when the conditions change and it's gone, we're lost. And it actually, to, to lean so much outside, weakens our confidence and takes us away from seeing the truth. This is from Chinul, who was the, brought Zen Buddhism to Korea, from a book called Tracing Back the Radiance. It's tragic. People have been deluded for so long. They do not recognize that their own minds are the true Buddhas. They do not recognize that their own natures are the true Dharma. They want to search for the Dharma, yet they still look far away for holy ones. They want to search for the Buddha, but they will not observe their own minds. All the Buddhas of the past were merely persons who understood their minds. All the sages and saints of the present are likewise merely people who have cultivated and understood their minds. All future meditators should rely on this truth as well. I hope that you who cultivate the path will never search outside. The nature of the mind, the heart, is unstained. It is originally whole and complete in itself. So this initial faith needs to be deepened, needs to be verified, which luckily for us comes about through our mindfulness practice itself, through actually beginning to look at the nature of our own minds, the nature of our own hearts. This is the heart of the Buddhist teaching, this famous saying Michelle mentioned it the other night, ehi pasako, which means you too come and see. As far as we can tell, the Buddha never advocated, believe this because I say so. You know, do this because I'm telling you it's right. But it's this ehi pasako, come and see for yourself. Try this and see for yourself if it leads to freedom from suffering, or if it leads you into more suffering. And you can tell for yourself. No one else can do that for you. 
And so this does begin to happen. All the wisdom that Steve spoke about the other night, we all know, we all see it developing, deepening, and becoming our own experience in our own particular way of experiencing, not taking it because someone else has said so. The time that you really viscerally understand the nature of impermanence. And when you really see a difficult, painful experience that seems intolerable, and suddenly there's a shift of attitude and acceptance, and you can't find the suffering in the painful experience anymore. And people talk about this over and over and over. Yeah, we forget it again. But we do experience this wisdom deepens in us through our own moment-to-moment willingness to be with what happens. And so at this point, we're not talking about just bright faith on an external source anymore. We're beginning to be in touch with verified faith, with our own personal wisdom. And it's much deeper, it's much more solid, because what you know for yourself Nobody can take it away from you. And if someone were to come up when you're really seeing the impermanence of things and try to convince you that your body's permanent, you don't need to get in a big argument about it. You know what you know. It's unshakable at that point. That's verified faith. And the other quality of faith that I want to talk about is that of trust, which I really think of as the ability to be open to, really open to, connected with our experience in just this moment. My favorite um, way of describing it is from a book by a person that I've never heard of again, but he's talking about radical acceptance. Sort of that childlike quality Michelle spoke of the other night. But he says, radical acceptance is radical acknowledgement of the presence of truth at this very moment. The only thing to do is to do nothing but accept truth in all things, as all things, at all times, in all forms, in all ways. To let go, to accept, it is necessary only to give up your fears, your concerns. Only. But this radical acceptance has been a very helpful way for me to connect with the experience, with the quality of trust. As Upandita Sayadaw said, Unless there is softness and receptivity of mind, unless one totally surrenders, it will be almost impossible to receive anything. Totally surrenders to what? Radical acceptance of what? Only what is happening right now, in this moment, No exceptions. And that's the radical part. There's always something that we'd like to shut out of this scenario. 
So the interesting reflection for us is to really look at what am I resisting today? What have I been resisting this evening? What am I unwilling to receive in this moment? It's necessary only to give up your fears. Easier said than done. But we can use that as a point to begin investigation, to begin looking. It seems to me that that fear is sort of the opposite of trust, that when we're not living in faith, in trust, in radical acceptance, the flip side of that is living in fear, trying to control, trying to somehow make things match our idea of how they should be. And right under the surface of this is often fear. It can be really subtle when I look at this, what am I resisting? What is not part of the package today? It can be very subtle. When unnoticed, we're moving in fear and lack of trust. The sense of, and whenever this comes up, if I were doing it right, this wouldn't be happening. If I were doing it right, this other thing would be happening. That's the signal right there that something is not being radically accepted. I see this a lot in my own practice. I remember one retreat I did some years ago where I was really very present, mindful, really noting every moment thoughts weren't getting by and sadness kept coming up over and over and over. And I was very present, really noting it. This one image would come up. I'd note the image. I'd think, oh no, here we go again. I'd note that thought. I'd note not liking it, on and on and on. So there was this sense of, I'm very mindful. I'm really accepting this. And it just kept going on. I mean, for weeks. And at some point, at some point, I really could see this very subtle way that somehow this sadness is not quite what should be happening in a moment of truth. A moment of truth cannot include this experience, you know. And that can be very subtle. It can really slip by when we think we're very present. So experience this this radical acceptance, this trust. It's sort of a falling into this moment. It's accepting that this moment, just as it is, is totally okay. But not totally okay sort of at a distance. I'll look at it. It's totally okay. But there's just a little separation. It's totally okay and it should go soon because I know all things are impermanent. But (laughs) radical acceptance is a deep falling into this moment. No separation. A trust that this is all there is not just tolerable, but a deep trust and faith that in this moment, this experience, is where truth lies and nowhere else. It's really about opening into the unknown, completely opening into the unknown, which is the truth of our lives at every moment. 
but it's quite unsettling to consciously acknowledge this and live in that way. But there's a, a real difference between this radical acceptance and opening into the unknown and this sort of subtly trying to arrange our experience to meet our expectations, what we call manipulating meditation. And we all do it to try and get our seat at just the right height and just the right backrest and just the right knee props and just the right amount of temperature and the right amount of silence and when to sit in the hall and when to sit in the room. And if we figure out our schedule just right, then somehow we'll have these clear, vividly awake sittings or we'll continue in bliss or whatever the particular thing is that we've decided is good practice. Notice when we're doing this how frustrating it is when it doesn't manifest in the way that we've set up. That what we're really fostering in this is not clear meditation. It's not discovery of truth. Look at the mind state underneath that. It's a lot about fear and control and wanting to know how things are going to be or make things be the way we think they need to be for our security. You catch yourself like going to trying to recreate the clearest sitting you ever had day after day after day tilting your head in the same way, (laughs) eating the same thing just before, trying to organize your food. It's incredibly frustrating. And it's endless. What has this got to do with freedom? What has this got to do with trust? Nothing. Just manipulation, control. And it keeps us locked in fear, in our supposed limitations even though we think it's about trying to transcend. It's true, opening into the unknown, really opening into the unknown, moment after moment, can also touch off really deep fear. But in this way, the fear, as as one teacher said, it's a fear that means coming to the end of our self-imposed limitations. It's a fear that comes up as perceived boundaries are seen not to exist at all. It opens up immense possibility. It opens us up to the wonder of things when we're not so set on seeing what we've already decided is going to be there. But it's true. It's really scary. Somehow, and I don't know how come we got made this way, but the tendency, I wonder about that a lot. You know, how did, how did ignorance come to be? The Buddha said that's one of the things that thinking about it drives people mad. <laughs> the tendency of the conditioned mind seems to be, for most of us anyway, it's like to look for anything for stability, something, anything to depend on to trust in, to give us a sense of security, of familiarity, of somewhere to take a stand, something to depend on that we can ultimately fall back on and know this isn't going to change. 
this is, now I know what it's all about. I watch my mind doing this constantly when I'm on retreat because I can see it more clearly then. All the boundaries dissolve. It's really scary. Then there comes a peace in that. And finally, now this is how it is. And immediately there's another some idea to depend on. You want some solid ground. Literally. This, this spring, I was teaching in Yucca Valley, and I had never been in an earthquake before. And we had a couple of earthquakes there. Not the really major one that happened later in June or that happened in April in the north of California, but significant enough that we all really noticed. Believe me, we noticed. And uh, the, the whole series of aftershocks that went on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds for the next couple of days. It was so fascinating because quite literally, in a physical as well as a psychic sense, it became obvious in a way none of us could ignore. There is no firm ground here. That what we had, I, never having been in an earthquake, had always completely unconsciously felt that the earth is something I can bottom line rely on. Even though I know it's a ball and spinning and whizzing through space, that's not my experience. It's solid. It doesn't move. And to be standing outside and just have everything shaking and shimmering and there really is nowhere to hold on to because there's nothing that's not shaking and moving around. And then to have that start again, like every five minutes that night. And at the time of the first earthquake, I was just fascinated. Wow, this is really interesting. This is kind of far out, you know. It wasn't scary because I was outside and nothing could fall on me. By the next morning, where really every five minutes it starts up again, it starts up again, the psyche underwent quite a transformation of this, this real sense of shakiness. And something was deeply not okay about that. <laughs> the psyche, the ego, did not like it. You know? I don't think not too many other people there liked it either. And and it was really very interesting to be confronted, and that's the fact of our life every moment. There is nothing that's unchanging in this material, physical, psychic world that's going to stay, that we can rely on. And to hold on to such a thing is what brings us suffering, is what keeps us in illusion. This quotation came to me quite fortuitously a couple of days ago from a friend from the great Zen master, Rinzai Roku. He says, Among all the students from every quarter who are followers of the way, none has yet come before me without being dependent on something. I hit them here right from the start. If they come forth using their hands, I hit them at the hands. If they come forth using their mouths, I hit them at the mouth. If they come forth using their eyes, I hit them at the eyes. Not one has yet come before me in solitary freedom. You followers of the way from every quarter, try coming before me without being dependent on things. That's our challenge. Krishnamurti said, to seek the truth is to deny it. 
It's the search itself that prevents trust, that prevents us from opening to the mystery, to the unknown. But again, I'm not meaning to throw out technique or doctrine or teachings or concepts. All I'm saying is that that depending on any of them for our complete security, for the final explanation, we'll always be disappointed. But what's so wonderful, once we can be with the fear, once we are in a moment of opening to the unknown, to the mystery, to the wonder, is it's so incredibly simple that we, I mean, I just really wonder over and over, what's the problem? Why was this so hard? This is Suzuki Roshi again. While you are practicing, you may hear the rain dropping from the roof in the dark. Later, the wonderful mist will be coming through the big trees, And still later, when people start to work, they will see the beautiful mountains. But some people will be annoyed if they hear the rain when they are lying in their beds in the morning because they do not know that later they will see the beautiful sun rising from the east. If our mind is concentrated on ourselves, we will have this kind of worry. But if we accept ourselves as the embodiment of truth, of Buddha nature, we'll have no worry. We think, now it is raining, but we don't know what will happen in the next moment. By the time we go out, it may be a beautiful day or a stormy day. Since we don't know, let's appreciate the sound of the rain now. This kind of attitude is the right attitude. If you understand yourself as a temporal embodiment of the truth, you will have no difficulty whatsoever. So can we dare to do that? To even, for a moment, appreciate ourselves, our experience in this moment as an embodiment of the truth, as an embodiment of Buddha nature? So for me, this is where I find it possible to take refuge, deep refuge. I often reflect on the the three refuges in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and the Sangha, especially when I'm on retreat, especially in a difficult time. And for me, what it can be distilled into is there are three different ways of speaking about truth and taking refuge in the truth, in this moment, is taking refuge in the Dhamma. It's been very powerful for me. Encounters the tendency to just want to spring out of this moment and get away, somehow change it. I think that taking refuge in the Dhamma, taking refuge in the truth, is a real falling into this moment's experience, just as it is, with no guarantees, no idea what will happen next, really opening into the unknown. And in this mindfulness is our great protector because it teaches us, it shows us how to be with 
the truth of this moment, how to recognize it and how to fall into it without judging and without conceptualizing about it. Tibetan saying, if you want to find something greater than this in another place, it's like going off searching for footprints, although the elephant is right here. To me, that's what taking refuge in the Dharma, in the truth of this moment. We never know. We never know what the next moment's going to bring. Even though we may think we do, we don't know what's going to happen when we stand up and walk out of here. Even when you're sitting here, like when the fire alarm went off the other day. No way anyone could have predicted that, nor could most of you probably have predicted your spontaneous reaction to it. We never know. This, is, this radical acceptance of this not knowing, this radical acceptance of whatever this moment is bringing, is the only security we really have. And it's the only security we need. That this moment is enough to know the truth. What I love about Vipassana as a form of meditation practice is that for me it's been a training, actually. It's like a practice of radical trust. It's a practice of developing faith and acceptance. Actually, every moment is an opportunity to develop radical trust. We all know how difficult it is to open to how much we fight, how much we resist. That's what I've been talking about. That moment that somehow we suddenly surrender where instead of letting go, we just let be. We surrender into what's happening. The effect of that usually is not that we're overwhelmed. It's not that we're lost in fear. It's not that we can't go on. Often the effect of that is a real sense of empowerment, a real sense of confidence, of inner strength, a kind of deep knowing that, oh, you know, it's really okay. I don't have to try and control my experience. I don't have to try and make it meet some particular idea. I can really trust that if I can fall into the truth of this moment, that's all I need to do. The truth will reveal itself over and over and over. It's really uh, a very powerful and energizing experience. And this is the sense of confidence that faith, that trust can build. And we can notice this in a moment of mindfulness over and over. We can notice this same willingness to trust and the confidence it brings in more difficult experiences in our daily life, in ongoing difficult situations. Just to share a personal experience, a few years ago, and this is really something that taught me 
a lot about this sense of radical trust and acceptance. A few years ago, I began to develop um, uh, some physical condition, chronic disease, that nothing much was known about, except the doctors were quite ready to say, but don't worry, it can't be cured and it'll never go away. They made a point of saying that always. And um, it was sort of developing rapidly and kind of scary and painful, and I saw a future of a very restricted kind of life. And going through the whole process of fear and aversion, and I know Steve talked about the types last night, I'm a definite aversion type, so I had a lot of that to struggle with. And all the fears of never being able to do all the different things that I found myself not being able to do, like take a walk and so. And it was a wonderful, wonderful lesson in trust, in really deep, radical trust. Because I found that the bottom line was that what was the most healing aspect of it was trust in being with it just as it is in this moment. If I moved one fraction into, if I really accept or trust, then healing means I'll get better, or I'll get better to a certain extent, or some kind of change will take place. This or that should happen. And the total surrender to it was, oh, this is just how it is. I have no idea what is even the best thing for my own personal growth. How can I know? And so the trust was to just fall into each moment of the experience as it was. As soon as I start to project into the future, big trouble. As soon as I start remembering, oh, but last year I could do this or that, and now I can't. Nothing but suffering. Useless suffering. Because it didn't change the way things were in the moment. It's a great training in being mindful and present with just what is, because you get immediate feedback when you drift away from the present. It was really a, a wonderful teaching, because when there came that moment, and it seemed to last for quite a while, of just acceptance of, oh, this is the way things are right now. What will happen in the next moment is unknown. I don't even know what should happen. Drop it. There was, that was the deepest sense of healing, the deepest sense of trust. And it doesn't mean I don't drift out of that. And actually, I'm a lot better than I used to be. I can see now when I'm feeling good and some new sensation comes up, immediately the mind starts the whole trip again. Oh, no, maybe this is this and maybe this is that. Okay, right. Just drop into what's happening now. And it really is okay. It's only not okay if I want to compare it to something else. It really is totally okay as it is. And it's no hindrance to peace of mind. It's nothing is a hindrance to knowing freedom if we can really accept it. This kind of work, that, and it's what you're all doing here, develop such a deep and profound confidence to meet whatever arises in our life, to just let go into the unknown and be fully present in that experience. I just cut this out of the paper a couple weeks ago. 
So I love it. It's just an example of this letting go into the unknown. It's talking about Krakatau or Krakatoa, that island where in, uh, in the middle of the Pacific, where in 1883 a huge volcano blew up and it completely destroyed the island. And all that was left was uh, an ash-covered mountain, which was completely sterile, just everything dead on it. So nine, the first search for life on this, this ash-covered mountain was conducted in May 1884, only nine months after the explosion. Now remember, there's this ash-covered mountain in the middle of the ocean with nothing nearby. The only form of life they were able to discover was one microscopic spider. Only one. This strange pioneer of the renovation was busy spinning its web. A baby spider? How could a tiny, wingless creature reach the empty island so quickly? And then they found out that what these spiders, some spiders do, is they stand on the edge of a leaf or a twig or some exposed spot and they just start reeling out their silk, their little thread, you know, and they reel it out and it gets really long and it gets caught by the wind until the wind blows it. It's so long and the wind has so much pressure that it just lifts the spider and takes it off. And it just starts flying, you know. (laughs) It says, uh, not just pinhead-sized babies, but large spiders can reach thousands of meters of altitude and travel hundreds of kilometers before settling to the ground to start a new life. Either that, or they land on the water and die. They have no control over their own descent, and no way of knowing when they let go. That's really what our life is like, in a way. I mean, to be scary, amazing things happen. At some point, we are all going to die. But on the way, we can open into so much wonder, so much beauty, so much mystery, if we're just willing to be present for that, if we're just willing to accept whatever the mystery is presenting right now. This particular manifestation of truth, this particular embodiment of truth, that's me, or you, so-called, at this particular moment of experience. This is really radical trust. Giving one's heart. I read somewhere, and I don't remember where, that the Pali word for faith, which is sadha, is etymologically akin to the Latin word for heart. So that in a way, faith really means giving one's heart. So this radical acceptance is this deep giving of our heart to whatever is happening the beautiful, the wondrous, the so-called boring, the really difficult. And we need the difficult, because they wake us up. And you never know, it's never too late. I wanted to read this one poem by one of the Buddhist nuns from the time of the Buddha. She was uh, in deep distress. She'd been a nun for quite a while, and just wasn't getting it, so to speak, suffering. So she uh, went in the woods to hang herself out of despair. And just at that moment, ah, her heart was freed. 
So it's never too late if we're just paying attention. So I want to read her poem. They're quite direct, these poems. Obsessed by sensuality, I never got to the origin, but was agitated, my mind beyond control. I dreamed of a great happiness. I was passionate, but I had no peace. Pale and thin, I wandered seven years, unhappy day and night. Then I took a rope into the forest and thought, I'd rather hang than go back to that narrow life. I tied a strong noose to the branch of a tree and put it around my neck. Just then my heart was set free. We never know what will happen. We never know what particularly difficult experience is going to be one of the deepest gateways to us, to peace and understanding. Nisargadatta says faith is the willingness to try. In a way, that's what we're all doing. And it's just on a moment-to-moment level, nothing else. So I just want to close with a little quotation from Thich Nhat Hanh kind of to balance the opening one about the galaxy. This is more micro. He says, Looking at a speck of dust, an awakened person sees the universe. The world reveals itself, even when the eyes are closed. The world is neither inner nor outer. It is vital and complete in any object of contemplation. The breath, the tip of the nose, or anything else, as tiny as a speck of dust or as huge as a mountain. Whatever the object, it contains the vast totality of reality. Each moment contains the vast totality of reality. If we can radically accept this, rather than looking somewhere else, that's really all that we have to do. The world reveals itself. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.